Hello, Veggie Mates. Welcome back to another episode of the Veg Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is episode number 75 with Van Lifer and fellow Aussie, Max Bidstrup. You'll probably know Max from YouTube. His van travels from Canada to South America with his then partner, Lee, have gotten plenty of attention over the past couple of years. Max is now back in Australia and in the middle of a new van build out on his dad's farm in country Victoria. If you haven't had a chance to see any of Max's travels, I'd highly recommend heading over to YouTube, subscribing to the channels Max and Lee, and also subscribing to the new channel Max and Oki for any future adventures coming up. In this episode, we dive into Max's life growing up in Australia, getting into the field of paramedics, the reason for packing up everything, moving to Canada, building a tiny home on wheels and traveling all the way down to South America. It was also impossible not to chat about Oki, his dog. It's great to be back, guys, after a few months break. I'm really stoked you're joining me today for this conversation and hope you enjoy it. I'll catch you all on the other side to wrap things up. All right, guys. Today, we are with Max Bidstrup. Uh, he, you might know him from uh, a whole bunch of van life DIY videos uh, on his channel. Uh, you might know his dog as well, Oki, pretty famous pup uh, around the globe. But yeah, he's currently doing an epic build. And Max, thanks very much for your time today and coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good we could finally line it up. Yeah, I'm glad we could line it up. Um, it's coming towards the end of your build. So uh, that's, yeah. that's really exciting. But before we get into this COVID winter build that you've been doing uh, down under, uh, I'd love to just hear like a little bit about you know, your life growing up because it's been a really cool insight having the videos of the farm and like even just like the sheep, the kangaroos, the wildlife, the the sounds in the morning just remind me of like country Australia, country Victoria. Uh, so it kind of takes me back home and it's, uh, yeah, they've been really, yeah, really cool to watch during, um, during COVID. So did you grow up on the farm or did you grow no. up somewhere else in Australia? So this farm is my grandparents' farm. Um, I grew up, so I'm in currently about an hour north of Melbourne um, where I am here, but I grew up in Wangaratta, which is a small country town, 25,000 people-ish, um, and that's another two hours away from here. So I grew up visiting this farm, you know, a few times or probably, you know, five or six times a year and always had such good memories of it and this is where I learned to ride a motorbike and you know just kind of we live I grew up on five acres because I was outside of town in Wangaratta but this is where I guess we really got a bit more of a taste for farm life and my family like we've had this farm in my family for 150 years and um, it kind of it grew and grew and grew when farming was huge you know and then in the last 50 years it's kind of gradually been or 30 years really it started to be sold off as that generation of farmers is kind of going which in a way is mm. yeah is a little sad but my dad has built on the property here um and my uncle owns a bit of land here as well so we're we're keeping some of it for sure and as you said those bird sounds and everything it's funny i when i'm filming and when i'm 
you know, present in the moment. I definitely notice them. But when I play it back and watch it, that's when they really stand out. And I guess that part of that's, you know, your um, shotgun mic really picking up when you're pointing towards the trees and everything as well. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been a very nice, pleasant place to spend, you know, this crazy time in our lives. I can only imagine what it's been like for people that have been stuck in kind of apartments and, you know, I don't know if people listening know about the restrictions that are going on in Victoria and in Melbourne, but you being a Melbourne boy, I'm sure you've got friends and stuff from here. It's, it's been pretty crazy the level of crazy in the sense that it's just unforeseen and, you know, the level of lockdown and restrictions on what people can do. But I am someone that kind of believes that it's, it's doing it for the right purpose. And, you know, um, but in saying that, yeah, I've got friends that are in Melbourne an hour away that are allowed out to exercise for one hour a day. And meanwhile, I can kind of wander all over this farm and kind of spend all day outside without breaking any rules and to be able to share that with people online has been really nice. And I, I've definitely had people from all over the world kind of commenting, saying how much they're enjoying just the scenery shots alone. I mean, part of me wants to just put up our videos of the scenery and, you know, seeing if people just want to watch that because it's, it's nice to be able to share it, especially at the moment. Couldn't agree more. We were just, we were just chatting before we jumped on Anna and I uh, about, just the difference of the experience. It, it, it's a funny experience worldwide because we've all experienced COVID and it's, we've all had some restriction, but really the level of restriction and the, uh, the numbers of people falling ill and passing away from it are completely different around the globe. Um, and we were just saying that, yeah, living in an apartment here in the city is, yeah you can see everything around you. You're so close to restaurants, cafes. Uh, you're close. We're close to where we work, everything, but we can't go there or for a lot of those places. We, we can't go to them. So yeah. it does seem very inhibiting, but then yeah. we watch your videos and it's exactly what you said. You know, you've got this land and there's no one around. There's wildlife animals. Um, it, it's nice and cold in the morning to wake you up as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just the experience is totally different. Uh, and then in Melbourne, if you want to go into it a little bit, Melbourne's in a bit of a, from at least where I'm, from what I've heard from my parents and my brother, it's, it's definitely a funny situation in terms of the restrictions are super tight. Um, yeah. But also the numbers don't seem to be, I suppose. Firstly, I'd like to say it's good that they're taking it seriously. Uh, yeah. I think that's super important. But the numbers just compared to the rest of the world, don't seem to be that bad so it must be just i don't know i imagine it's getting to people yeah i think as you said we were chatting before and when i i kind of touched on you know on a completely different level of not comparing yourself to anyone i think the same could kind of be said with covid numbers you you know i'm sure we'll get into it but i come from a health background and i've also combining that with being in a position where, you know, I've got quite a few people that follow me on Instagram and YouTube and things like that. I've had people messaging me on Instagram that are kind of, I guess you'd call them anti lockdown or anti COVID, you know, they think it's all a hoax and they've been sending me all these articles saying, you need to share this on your channel, get the word out. And 
I don't, I don't want to get kind of too deep into it because I know people have their own views on it. But I, for starters, I don't think Australian numbers should ever be compared to US numbers because I think the US numbers are bloody terrible. Like, you know, to, mm. to say, oh, well, Australia's numbers are good in comparison. Yeah, they are. But it's still people getting sick and still people dying. And, you know, being a paramedic for seven years in Melbourne a lot of my friends are the ones on the front line working it and they're being exposed and health workers are in the highest demographic of people getting COVID because they're being exposed so much. Yep. So for the people that are taking it so lightly and saying we shouldn't wear a mask and all of this, because it's, you know, encro in, um, encroaching on our human rights because we shouldn't be told to wear a mask. I mean, I think those people need to kind of grow up and realize that, it's for the greater good. And in saying that the latest, so for Melbourne, for anyone that's not aware, Melbourne's just been told their lockdowns extending essentially for up to potentially six weeks, really, they're going to slowly step it down. That even with me and my views, strong views about how it is important, I was kind of shocked that it was still staying so strict and um, it's gotten kind of mixed feedback over here i think the thing a lot of people need to remember is that daniel andrews who's the premier of victoria you know he hasn't made that decision lightly because it's obviously not a popular decision like they're already saying it's going to hurt him being kind of re you know mm -hmm. re-elected as premier because of that so he's made that decision obviously he's got a huge thing on his conscience if people conscience if people do die as a result of easing too quickly and all that kind of stuff so yeah, it's it's such a tricky situation. Whereas at the same time, in some parts of regional Victoria, they haven't had a case the whole time, but they're kind of being grouped into the lockdown. And I can understand the frustration with those communities that haven't had any cases and are being told they have to wear a mask, even though, you know, no one in within 300 kilometres has had a case of COVID. So mm. it, I, I see arguments from both sides, but... Yeah, I, I think this is just such an unprecedented time for everyone. And going back to Australian numbers being low, I think, I think Australia being an island and so shut off is in that kind of unique situation where I think they feel like we really can get it down to such a low level that things can go back to normal. So any increase, like it got up to 500 cases a day in Victoria when it was down at like 10 that is a huge increase for them. And I just, I think they really want to get on top of it. They're looking at the long run, hoping it can go closer back to normal. It's a great point. It's a great point. There's no point comparing it to any other country or any other state for that matter, because they're really only dealing with themselves. So I think you've hit it, hit, hit the nail on the head there, man. Um, I didn't yeah. know that. I haven't spoken to my parents in a couple of days. So to yeah. hear they've extended the lockdown is yeah, it's, yeah I mean, it's, my it's tough, but you, I, I think you're right for the greater good, for sure. And if they can get the numbers so low that everything can go back to normal, I mean, everyone will be raving about it in a couple of months so yeah. or a few months. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, my mum is in Melbourne and she's, she's definitely feeling it. She's such a social person normally. Um, and, you know, you can tell it's affecting her. My brother's in the next state and we, I actually want to move to the next state at the moment pretty much and i'm told that the only way i can move there is i have to fly into sydney do a hotel quarantine for two weeks which i have to pay three thousand dollars to do and then i would have to get a train back to the border to get my van 
get my sister to drive the van across, drive back up. And then the problem is, which I'm sure we'll get to later, but Oki, my dog is only able to fly into Melbourne. So then to get Oki, I would have mm. to kind of do all the logistics of that as well. So yeah, headaches, I mean, headaches. <laughs> yeah, my, well, my brother's about to have a baby in a few weeks and you know, our whole family obviously wants to be there. And, and at the moment, none of us can because we're all mm. in a different state. And I feel like that story is just one of a billion around right. the world right now. So you, I guess everyone's just got to kind of find the best ways to deal with it. Totally, totally. So I suppose we, we've gone into the current, current affairs. If we go back to, to the days in, in Wayne Garatta and everything, how did, how did you get into the medical field, into, uh, into paramedics? Yeah. So I, so yeah, as I said, I grew up a bit out of town in Wayne Garatta and then um, my, so I, I guess for starters, my family is, is very health focused. My mum is a psychologist. My dad's a vet. Um, and so I grew up actually helping dad, you know, at the vet clinic and, I think, and we always adopted dogs as well. At one point, I think we had like six dogs out there because anytime, anytime one was going to get put down because no one wanted it, dad would eventually take it and we'd have that dog for a while until someone could. So that kind of got me really caring about animals and I think just healthcare in general. And for a long time, I actually wanted to be a vet as well. Um, and then going through school in high school, um, one of my best friends, his dad was a paramedic. Um, and he, I kind of had a lot to do with their family and talking to him about it. I don't know. It kind of just, it appealed to me in so many ways. And I, I think I was only like 15, but as soon as we started talking a lot about it, I kind of knew from then that that's what I wanted to do. And to be honest, I, it was what I thought I would always do. Um, I, yeah. And what appealed to me was the idea of you never knew what you were kind of going to get each shift. It was always going to change monotony is something that's always killed me from a young age so like I wanted something that could change and then you know on top of that the other things like 10 weeks paid leave a year which I know to people that live in the US is an insane amount and I you know I've covered that a lot with talking to people from there but um yeah and for you work four shifts on four shifts off so it really gives you a good I think it, it's a job that as long as you can enjoy the job and handle the kind of mental strain of it, it, it's a job that allows for a really good work-life balance. And for me, that's always something that I've been interested in. So after high, well, when I went through year, the final years of high school, year 11 and 12, I kind of picked subjects that would lead me, you know, make sure I ticked all the boxes for paramedics. And I was kind of a really, a, a, without putting it another way, I was a shit student up until year 10 or 11 I got told by a teacher who was awkwardly enough also happened to be one of my best friend's dads that <laughs> I was a juvenile delinquent and that I was going nowhere in life and that was when I was 16 um so that kind of shows that yeah I guess I wasn't I wasn't the best student but I was always really competitive and I think the thing that saved me was my brother is two years older than me and he went through year 12 the year before me and did really well. And that was for me, the thing that was like, well, you know, I want to beat him. So mm -hmm. I, I really knuckled down and then the added wanting to get into paramedics um, helped me focus. And so I got the marks I needed and, and then went straight to university 
um, straight from school, left town, you know, left the country town of 25,000 people and moved straight to Melbourne on my own, moved in with a couple of guys that I didn't really know that well and, and jumped straight into uni. And, you know, it was a decision I kind of never regret, never regretted. That's cool. I think, what, what university did you go to? I went to Monash. Which one? The one, the Peninsula campus. We went to the same university, bro. Really? What'd you study there? I did. Um, and I, it was funny. I was just saying again, before we got on, I'm like, I bet you Max went to the same university because there were always a bunch of paramedics and there were a yeah. bunch of country kids yeah, yeah. at the Peninsula campus. So um, that's interesting that you did go. I studied business economics um, and also outdoor recreation in a double degree. Okay. Uh, I think it was basically the only, it was the only campus of any university in, in Melbourne that was doing such a, a weird combo. So yeah. yeah, loved it. Cool campus, a little bit different to the city campuses and the, the Caulfield campus, but yeah, if anything, it was a good transition for me because it was pretty small and yep. The fact that it, you know, it was in Frankston, which anyone from Melbourne <laughs> knows about Frankston, and I think it's got a better rep now than it had. But that was kind of what allowed me to afford to afford moving to uni because I remember when I went, my rent was like seventy dollars a week or something. Which, mm -hmm. if it was in Melbourne, I couldn't have afforded to pay double that. So, yeah, that's crazy though. What what years yeah. were you there? We were probably there at the same time. I was there two thousand and eight to. I want to say 2013. Yeah, I was there 2007 to 2009. So we, we could have passed each other on the campus. We crossed paths probably. That's wild. That's crazy. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, it just, there was that moment I was like, I wonder, a lot of country kids at that campus for sure. I think it's, as you said, it's probably a good transitional campus for kids coming from um, towns that just aren't, you know, as huge as a, as a major city. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, also, yeah, I just remember there being a bunch of paramedics on, yeah. on the campus. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, what'd you, what'd you do there? Cause that's, I, I've always been fascinated by, um, people that live in regional Victoria, yeah. their university experience must be so different to the majority of of city kids that, that go to university because my experience and what I always tell people overseas where I've traveled to is, well, it's not strange for us to live at home the whole time we're at university. I worked two jobs the whole time I was at university and that just wasn't weird, but people in America or the UK, they're like, Oh no, we leave home, you know, be, large student loans and we kind of like live in dorms and it just seems like a massive party. Um, but yeah. my, my experience was way different to that. So what was it like actually leaving home and, you know, renting a place when you're 18 and living with your mates? Yeah. Um, you're right in that there was definitely, I remember there was definitely times I was jealous of people that could live at home still and you know if anything i think that you might have been in the minority of people that worked while they lived at home while they studied like so many 
people I knew in my course that were living with their mum and dad still didn't even work. And mm. for me, I was working two jobs to be able to afford being down there. I'd only just turned 18. I'd only just gotten my license. I didn't have a car actually for the first year, mm. which public transport down there is not great either. No. Um, and yeah, I guess it made me grow up really quickly. I think the combination probably of that and being a paramedic, you know, do, doing the paramedic stuff all made me grow up really quickly to the point that by the time I finished university and started full-time as a paramedic, I just turned 21 and I was going to these big car accidents and, you know, doing all these big jobs. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people that met me thought I was a bit older than I was. Um, whereas I had friends that had kind of just hadn't even, you know, gone to uni yet. They'd just been getting drunk since the end of high school and hadn't really changed. Um, so it just really broadened this gap between us. But in regards, in regards to my time at uni, I loved it. I mean, I wish first year in hindsight that I, I didn't realize when I went there that there was like an on res, like you could live on campus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, instead I moved in with a couple of my brother's friends, which, you know, turned out to be not that greater kind of living environment for the first year. They weren't studying paramedics. They were doing other stuff. And, but within the first two weeks of paramedics, I made friends with three guys in the course that have been my best friends ever since, you know, it's now 11 years later, which is kind of crazy to think mm -hmm. about, but they, or more than that, 12 years later, but they, I literally just had a zoom catch up with them on Saturday night. Two of them have kids now they're all married. Like, um, but we've still kept really close and they're the people that I'm probably closest to. So they made my uni experience really good as well as the fact that I think a lot of people go to university and they're not sure what they're studying is what they want to do. So they, you know, they don't commit to it that much and, you know, they might kind of enjoy the process less because of it. But I was so sure that paramedics was what I wanted to do that. I loved all the aspects of coursework, except, you know, obviously like the, the extra readings and that no one ever does those. Right. But, um, <laughs> we, I was talking to a friend saying this year must be the first year people have actually done pre-readings in university ever. But right. um, it also moving down there gave me the chance to start surfing because I'd grown up three hours inland. I'd always, I don't know why I'd, I just always had this like absolute love and fascination with the beach and the ocean and literally it would be one or two times a year we'd go on a family trip down to you know St Kilda Beach or something or it must have been other beaches because I remember there being waves and my mm -hmm. brother and I would just run into this like big shore breaker surf and get pummeled and just keep doing it for hours and we'd go back wrecked and so when I got down to Frankston down to the peninsula there it took me kind of a year to work on my mates to say, cause none of them at the time surfed, but a couple of them had in the past. And I was kind of saying like, you know, let's get into it. Let's get into it. And then it got to the point that by second and third year, we were skipping classes when it was good surf. And literally, I think before our third year exams, one of my friends laminated cue cards and in the week off before exams, we were surfing when he was pulled out cue cards in the waves to, to study like, you know, it always seemed like the surf was the best just before exams. So we couldn't not surf. Oh, that's hilarious. That's mate. That, yeah. that is dedication. I should, uh, so one of my mates at, uh, at university, he was also a big surfer. Uh, sounds a lot like you guys. I think he, he would skip 
skip lectures uh, if the surf was good, skip, yeah, skip any class if the surf was good. Um, yeah. It's funny as I, I'll tell him about the cue cards. That's gold. That's, that, that's legit. You actually, your friends actually laminated cue cards. Yeah. Legit. Oh, that's hilarious. That is hilarious. But yeah, I'm not a big surfer. As you, like when you just mentioned St Kilda beach, I'm from Bo Morris. So South of St Kilda, but just growing up with no waves and no, no friends that, I won't say no friends, but not a lot of friends that surf. I just never got into it. My family don't surf really. So, but I love the ocean. Like when you were t- t- saying about like just running into the ocean and just like letting the waves um, kind of take you like that to me is just so refreshing. And there's something about the ocean that's definitely, um, I don't know, regenerating. I just, I, I love getting in there at any opportunity I can. Um, but yeah. I just haven't got on a board. I get bagged about it all the time being an Aussie that can't surf. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, but then you'd be embarrassed to try and learn over there because they all expect you to be really good. Probably. And they, they do surf out here on the, on the coasts. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, they take it to a whole new level. The water's freezing here. It's not quite like the Iceland surfers that, that go yeah. out in, in the Arctic, but um yeah there's guys at work that like going to the coast and and surfing out there from what i've seen we go out to the coast all the time it looks a bit messy and it's not i suppose you know the waves aren't as picturesque as what you might imagine at an australian beach but yeah it's um, a bit darker water they still get it done it's it's impressive yeah i surfed a couple of spots in oregon on the way down when we drove down and um Oh, one of the main things I remember is there being those signs on the beach being careful of the, what do they call them? Sneaker waves or. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I remember getting to one spot and the waves actually did look really nice and there was just no one out. And I was kind of a bit surprised. And when I went to go out, this guy said, oh, he was kind of telling me about these waves. Cause I said, I saw the sign. And I didn't really know what it meant. And he said, they're really common at this beach or whatever. So I don't know. I still went out and surfed and had a good time, but it, it was in the back of my mind that these crazy mini tsunamis are going to come through. You, you figure when you're on the board, you might be in the best position, but you never know, I guess. I suppose if you're out there, it's probably, it probably is the best place to be. Um, yeah. It's more, from what I understand, is that getting too close to the shore... Yeah is dangerous these waves just come out of nowhere and they sweep people out and it happens you know a few times a year there was a really sad story earlier in the year and um i don't want to get too dark but you could probably find it on the internet but it's just a super sad story so yeah if you're in oregon be careful of the sneaker waves but um it's a beautiful coastline pretty epic coastline if if you get the chance to to drive down um so i suppose what you were just saying before about you know, being so sure about getting into, into paramedics and like, it's really what you wanted to do. Yeah. And you know, at the time we're currently talking to, you know, it seems like you've been on the road for, for years. So at what point did, you know, did you actually get into the field after university or was there, um, you know, something that got you away from, from paramedics for a while and um, you started kind of, um, you know, traveling around the globe really yeah well um i i went straight i think from uni i had maybe a month or two off and then straight into working full-time as a paramedic in melbourne um started in melbourne and i think i was there for three years um 
And the thing that, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I absolutely loved about it was that it got 10 weeks paid leave a year. So I, and what that kind of amounted to was generally you'd work three months or three to four months and then you'd have a month off and then same again. And I used to pretty much just use those three months to prepare for my next trip. You know, I'd plan where I'm going to go. I'd plan my overseas travel, everything. And then as soon as that time came up again, I would take the month off and I'd literally, you know, the end of my last night shift, I'd wake up in the morning, get to the airport and go. And I would get back the day before my first day shift. Like I never allowed myself time on either side. I used to joke that like I'd get back to work to be able to rest because you know, I, I wasn't doing relaxing travel. I wasn't doing the American style of like going to a, you know, um, all inclusive. I was backpacking and seeing different countries and, you know, it, it allowed me to see so much for, for years. And, you know, it, it, it was weird being over there with the other backpackers my age and them on a shoestring budget, whereas I was getting paid full wages on my paramedic stuff. So it was kind of nice to always be the guy that could shout a couple of beers for your mates you met over there. And I loved that. And then at kind of a similar time, I got Oki, my dog. I was only 21 when I got him. Um, and so I was very fortunate in that regards that when I did travel, he, um, I had housemates that were great by that point. I lived with my brother as well as some of my best friends and they were always happy to look after him for a few weeks when I did leave. Um, but that was when I left to go overseas each time, he was kind of one of the things I always missed most. Um, you know, even when I had a girlfriend back at home, you know, it was Oki that I kind of really felt bad about leaving and, um, always wished he could travel with me. And, but going back to like the paramedic side of things, as long as, as well as it giving me that balance, I, I loved it. Like, you know, I went through my first grad year. I did really well. I got through easy. Um, and then within a couple of years later, I became a clinical instructor, which meant I was training up new students. Um, within a year or so after that, I became the paramedic educator for a whole branch of 20 paramedics. So I was really in an educational role. Um, I was really enjoying it. And then a year later, I got nominated and passed all the exams to get into the critical care course of paramedics, which is a really hard course to get into. And it's fully paid for. Um, it's like 20 grand worth and they pay your way through it. So then you come out an intensive care paramedic. Um, so I was really like, I guess I was really on the up, you know, in work and I was enjoying it. And I think because I, because I kept progressing, it, it was staying really interesting and everything. And then uh, the same time I was studying the intensive care course during all this time, I had a, I initially had a station wagon that I put a mattress in and that would be like, I'd go stay down at the beach overnight on my days off because I was in Melbourne. Um, and I wanted to be able to surf in the morning. So I'd drive down an hour and stay there. And then I progressed, I bought a van and that was 2011, I think. And that van, I did like, you know, I put marine carpet on the walls, built a, built a bed base, put a little fridge in it and started doing like multi-day trips in that one, but you couldn't stand up in it. And then the, the, the no stand up thing is what we've got right now. It's uh, yeah, it hurts. It's a game changer once you, <laughs> it's, it's okay for multi-day trips, but if you want to live in it, yeah, I couldn't do it with not being able to stand up. <laughs> yeah. But so then I, I was kind of had these two 
pathways going. One, my work pathway was going really well, but then my life balance outside of that, I was really enjoying. And it was in 2016, at the start of 2016, no, the end of 2015, I had a really close paramedic friend who, um, yeah, who was young, younger than me, a couple of years younger than me. And she, she, yeah, we were close and she, you know, she, she died. Um, she had a drug overdose and it turns out she'd been taking work drugs and I didn't know, and I'd worked with her a lot and it kind of blew my world apart. I think like I, I, in some ways I felt this like responsibility that I didn't recognize anything. Um, and you know, you'd think in some ways that would make you, I think it could send people two ways. It could make you a lot more careful about things and everything, or it could make you more reckless. And for me, it made me more reckless. I kind of, um, you know, no, I was never crazy, but I started, you know, experimenting, I guess, a bit more with like party drugs and stuff. I never, never took any work ones or anything, but I kind of, I guess I lost a little bit of focus with work and I just wanted to travel. And then I did start to, that was just like a month or two. I had this like crazy time. And then I got back on track and things were good again. And that was the time I met Lee, like pretty much then Lee, um, she was uh, on a working holiday visa. So she's Canadian. She's from uh, just North of Toronto and she was on a year visa. She'd been in Melbourne for three months. And I met Lee then and we kind of, we started dating and found we had really similar interests. And with that, she, um, we'd started doing kind of a few day trips in the van. Um, we did this big trip and went shake, uh, shark cage diving with great whites in South Australia and kind of like lived in the van for four or five days at a time. And I remember on our first bigger trip in that, we had Oki with us as well. And we were just like, you know, this kind of shows that you need so little. And I think with, you know, I know I kind of just threw in there that other stuff that happened with my friend, but it's important to, I think the story of my, how my mindset changed with, I was so focused on work up until before my friend passed away. And then once it happened, I think, even though paramedics had already kind of reinforced it to me, having someone so close taken away from me so quickly just reinforced me that life is so short and anything can happen at any time. And so when Lee's visa was getting close to expiring, I was kind of just, Australia is really tough to stay in once your visa runs out. And I was kind of, I kind of just said to her, look, I, I, I wanted, there's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's this crazy idea. And if you're up for it, I'll literally quit my job. I'll leave paramedics. I'll sell my house that I had everything. Um, and so I told her about my plan. I wanted to build out a camp, a van into a full camper van, which at the time there wasn't like nearly as much stuff online about that. Like it, it's not like, you know, we were the first people to do it, but there was a lot less information out there. Um, and I said, I wanted to build out this van in Canada at her place and then drive it down to Panama. And um, she was up for it. So, you know, then it, it all kind of happened really quickly. We started um, 
making plans for my, I kind of said straight away, well, I, I really want to do it, but I'm not leaving Lockie. Like I, I know this is going to be a, a year or two year kind of thing. And I want Oki to come with me. So yeah, we figured it out and Oki flew over, flew over with me and by November, 2016, we we're in Canada and start like starting looking for vans over there. Wow. Yeah. That was a, that was a world whirlwind um, piece that you just went through for sure. I, um, yeah, it's. Um, I think what you kind of just went over, it, it definitely just sounds like you had... Being a paramedic, I'm assuming that in some ways you were desensitized to what goes on. The, yeah. the amount of times that you would be entering horrible situations, there must be a point where, you know, it, it really is just getting the job done. Like there's important quick work that needs to be done surgically at the scene and yeah, it must be desensitizing at some point, but then it's different when you have someone so close to you pass away suddenly because there's nothing like your, you know, it's like, it's really getting at your own feelings and your own experience. Um, and it's, it's just totally different. Uh, but to come out of it, the other side with, yeah, with what you just went through is, is pretty special to, to kind of dump everything and, and have a head over to Canada. That's um, man, that's wild. That's a wild experience. That's cool. Yeah. It's, as I said, it was kind of, I guess, a big factor in that making me take that plunge. And I think that's what stops a lot of people in, you know, in their normal life is they're so comfortable in their job and they're so comfortable in their life that, they don't want to take the risk and do it. And for me, for paramedics, another thing was like, I was coming up, I was like less than a year off long service leave. I'd accrued like 500 hours of sick leave. I had all this stuff that I would have been giving up and I had people telling me that as well as, you know, my career was kind of going really well. Um, and I think a lot of people at that point go, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't take this risk or anything. And, and I don't know if I would have, if it hadn't have been for those past events, but you know, I don't really, I don't regret a thing. Um, it's, it's led to some of the like craziest adventure I could have ever imagined. And, you know, it's, there's, I feel like in the last 10 years, so much has happened in my life that I couldn't even begin to like touch on it and that, I can't believe there's still so many years left to go, you know, that, you know, what's the next decade going to hold kind of thing. Um, for me personally, I actually, I know a lot of people are, are really gutted about not being able to travel and everything at the moment. For me personally, I was like, Oh, I kind of, I think I needed this excuse to try and stay still. And I want to get more of a home base now and kind of stop becoming such a, I, I don't know, a vagrant, I guess, you know, nomad. Yeah. Yeah. A nomad. Exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think you touch on a, a bunch of important topics. It's really hard to reflect on life when you are comfortable and you know, why would you want to get out of that? Why would you want to go and face something challenging, scary, and I suppose change really at the end of the day is all, of the, all that it is. It's where, where, 
yeah, constantly afraid of changing things up. Um, so it's really cool that you did that. And I suppose that's what led to a lot of people getting to know who you are, you know, um, starting a YouTube channel and, and getting in the van. There's, I mean, I just looked, you said that there's so much we could cover and I totally agree. I mean, we've got half an hour before you got to head off, but yeah, there's so much we could, we could get into. We bought our van in, in Canada. You made your van in Canada. We bought ours in Montreal. And yeah. I remember you guys talking about, cause we used we used you as a resource when we were looking to get into van life. So um, we had some trouble getting our van back into America cause we had to import it and there was some funky stuff there, but you guys also spoke about some funky stuff in Ontario with licensing and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think I'll push that to the side and get people to go and check out maybe some of your guys early, early videos. Cause I'm sure there were some headaches in the, in the whole creation process and, and, and yeah. registering process. But what was your plan once everything was done and dusted? Uh, with the van, was it still the Panama trip? You wanted to get down there and, and travel through the, the States and into South America? Yeah, f for me, for me, definitely it was Panama. And Lee Lee liked the idea of it. Um, we, we didn't even look as far as South America at that point. But during the build Right, process, Central America, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, um, I said South America. Definitely Central America. Yeah. yeah. Right. But during the build process... Um, we just had so, as, as you'd know, being in, in the States, there's Mexico has such a bad rap in the States and in Canada and all that people hear from those places is the negative stories that happen. And, you know, I always describe it like, imagine hearing about a, a mass shooting or, or, you know, an incident like that in Chicago and then, me saying, well, the whole of the States is super dangerous. That's what it's like with Mexico. There'll be, there's definitely some like more risky places in Mexico, but the whole country gets this like wash as being super dangerous. And because of that, when we were building the van, we had, Lee had a lot of pressure from family, friends, as well as her family saying, I don't think you should go to Mexico. I think it's too dangerous, you know, in the van, um, why don't, you know, Canada and the U S are so big. Why don't you just, cause, cause our plan initially with leaving was like, let's travel for a year. We think that's how much we can kind of afford before our money runs out. And then we'll just figure it out after that. Like that, we had no plan beyond that. We didn't want to work that year. We just wanted to travel and really experience it. And so by the time we left Lee's place in September, um, the idea was that we weren't going to Mexico anymore. We weren't going south of the US. We were just going to travel Canada and the US and see how it went. And I kind of always had in the back of my mind, like maybe we could just slowly edge down and see what happens. <laughs> and then of course, once we got on the road, especially once, because we initially drove all the way across Canada, which was awesome. I was really blown away by even just Northwestern Ontario. I'd never heard anything about it. And it was, because it was the start of fall or autumn, you know, the colors there, people drive up from the States to see that. And so we just had this kind of amazing start. And then when we started going South through the U S it was getting cold. Um, cause it, I think we left Vancouver Island once we had ice 
on the inside of our windscreen and it was I was surfing there and my I couldn't feel my hands. I was really embarrassed. I um had to get Lee to take my surf booties off because I literally couldn't move my hands to do it. And this like local guy from Vancouver Island was calling me a pussy and <laughs> you know, all this stuff. And I was like, man, I'm just not used to it. And I was the only one out there that didn't have gloves on because I just wasn't equipped. And anyway, when we were going south through the States, we just met person after person that was like, dude, you have to go to Baja. Baja, Mexico is like the best place in the world for vans. And so slowly over time, Lee was kind of coming around to the fact and then we met another couple who were in a converted school bus and they said, we'll convoy with you. Um, Pat and Kat, they were, we ended up traveling with them for two months. Nice. Um, they were from Montreal actually, but they kind of gave us, I think, the confidence. We were all shitting ourselves when we crossed the border. Like we had it in our heads, we were going to get shot at as soon as we crossed the border. I went to get uh, um, some oh. spare parts. I went to get some spare parts for the sprinter in San Diego before we crossed. And mm -hmm. I told the guy the plan. I said, tentatively, we want to go to Panama because that was still in my mind. And this guy literally said to me, I can ship you parts anywhere. But he's like, I don't think you're coming back. I think you're going to get killed. Like, that's what he said to me in this spare parts shop. Like, that was the mindset what? we had going against us. And then, of course, we went to Baja. It was, it's still probably one of my favorite places in the world. Probably my favorite place with the van um, or one of, yeah, definitely one of them. Um, and I was blown away that there's hardly anyone from the US there in comparison to other countries. Like people from the US just don't realize and, you know, I should shut up about that because I think it's a good thing. Right, um, yeah. But we, we ended up spending five and a half months in Mexico and had to drag ourselves out of there really because by that point, we, I'd convinced Lee we were still going south. So we were going to cross to Belize and then on from there. Um, but we figured we could be in Mexico for a year, you know, it was so good and the people were so nice and the culture and, you know, everyone always said, did you feel unsafe? And to be honest, we felt more unsafe in LA than we did in Mexico, um, mm -hmm. and more unwelcome in LA than we did in Mexico. Um, everyone was so nice and we broke down a couple of times and we had people really try and help us. And even though my Spanish was, it was getting better, but it was pretty bad these guys, you know, just through hand gestures and everything. One guy ended up taking me to Costco and we got a new battery and then all this stuff purely out of the kindness of their own hearts. They didn't want anything. And um, yeah, I guess that kind of just led on. And then when we're in Mexico um, five months in was when we ran into, we kind of really had the chance meeting of running into Eamon and Beck and the minimal millennials, which were, two other couples that both had YouTube channels and that kind of changed everything for us, I guess. Um, I feel bad. I feel like we haven't even talked about the fact that I've been plant-based or, <laughs> or anything like that. I know this is a veg talk. Podcast. Nah, dude, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Just hearing, you know, hearing stories outside of, outside of veganism. I think veganism is something that we all have in common but once you start chatting outside of that, you understand that people from all walks of life are committing to a plant-based life. Um, yeah, which is what makes it interesting because I think there's still some kind of stereotype that there's all these tofu-eating hippies um, are the only ones that really want to do it. So yeah, that's really why I started the, 
um, the show and I'm all about, I'm all about hearing about van life and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are in the same boat. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more, man. Wow. Baja is a beautiful spot and, uh, definitely. Yeah. It's probably our favorite spot in the, in the whole time we were in our van. Uh, just, we call it van life heaven. It's, it's van life heaven. It is the best place to be. Uh, we had a funny, Anna's from Mexico. So, yeah. you know, we didn't really have the, we'd been to Mexico a bunch of times before. And I don't think we had the um, apocalyptic kind of view of, of what was going to happen once we crossed the border. But yeah. um, it was interesting crossing the border because I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but I suppose we were nervous, like, you know, uh, crossing the border, not really knowing what's going to happen. Um, you know, everything we own is in the van and yeah, I suppose it was a little nerve wracking, but we got to the border from San Diego, same thing. And the, the inspectors kind of like open the back doors up and look in the, in the van, look under the bed real briefly, slam the doors shut. And then they're like, yeah, you're good to go. And I'm thinking, this is too good to be true. Like I haven't even shown my passport yet. Like what's, what's going on? And they're like, yeah, you're good to go. And we start driving and we're, we're out of the, you know, the kind of customs area and we're into Tijuana and we're driving down the road in Tijuana. Like are we, we're in like, what the hell? We didn't get our passports stamped. They were telling us our friends that we bought the van from were like, yeah, you need to get, um, like a visa for your van, like a vehicle kind of, um, you need to get vehicle paperwork done. So we start texting on his dad and he's like, go back. You've done it wrong. <laughs> go back. So we had to go back into the U S yeah. Oh, really? We kind of fucked it up. That wasn't our plan. We were trying yeah. to get back to the Mexican border. Yeah. Art but I'm not sure if it's only one way, like you can only go out of it. Okay. So super confusing roads. I ended up going back into the line to get into the U S and we had to go around and come, (laughs) come back into Mexico to do all the proper paperwork. Um, so yeah, Yeah. but what a spot, what a, what an amazing spot. It's super common. The amount of people that I've heard that did that. And I think the only reason we didn't was because the friends were convoying with, she was, she'd done all this research and she spoke Spanish and, and kind of made sure that we did it right. But like Eamon and Beck actually did the same thing. Um, Like a lot of people did. I think now they've actually put a, um, like a second building. You can get it down. I forget the name of the big city, the, further down the line for people essentially that do it because Ensenada. Yeah. yeah, In Ensenada. Yeah. Like I heard of a guy getting all the way to La Paz at the base of Baja. And then he had a course, he was in a course on mainland Mexico and he went to ship his van and they're like, well, where's your permit? And so he had to fly from La Paz to Tijuana, get his permit, then fly back to be able to go. So Definitely suckers a lot of people in. For sure. There's some wild stories. And once we got to La Paz, we were like, we're so glad we turned around because, you know, although turning back 20, 30 minutes was annoying at the time. Yeah. God, it was no. so, it was so worth it when we got to La Paz because um, that would have been a real headache. Um, yeah. But yeah, so meeting Eamon, Eamon and Beck, I mean, they're obviously um, 
also massive on YouTube, also doing a van build uh, at the same yeah. time. You guys have been trading some jabs back and forth in the videos, which has been kind of funny to watch. Uh, yeah. But yeah, what they pushed you to go into YouTube and then, you know, what was it like then navigating kind of like a really fast rise of audience and, um, and yeah, did you ex like, how did it change your, your travels, I suppose, and navigating your relationship with like an audience? Yeah. So we, yeah. So I think when we met them, we were six months into the, to the trip and um, we were kind of getting to this point it was just, I guess it was a little bit serendipitous in that we were really getting to this stage where even though we were loving Mexico, we were feeling a little bit listless. And I think Lee, especially because it's funny, like you talk to anyone that loves surfing and surfing in a way is what can be your job when you're doing nothing else. Like if you are staying on a deserted beach and you surf once a day, you feel like you've achieved something which is, it's kind of hard to explain for people that don't <laughs> surf, but I could never get bored if I was surfing every day, essentially. But Lee didn't surf, or she did a little bit, but didn't have that drive. And we got to this point, yeah, six months in where we we're feeling a little bit directionless. We weren't sure what we were doing. And then just so happened that we were in this car park in this town. I'm trying to think of the name of it. We're in Oaxaca in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And... um we saw another van there and we're like, oh, it had the Chihuahua plates on. And we're like, oh, we know that's Eamon and Beck. We'd followed them online. They actually started their van conversion after we did, only an hour apart. But because they did their van conversion so quick, that first one they did in a month, which I still don't even know how it's possible. Like I talked to Eamon about it now and he's like, I don't even know how I did it. Um, but they, so we had been kind of following them. We'd almost crossed paths a couple of times um and then so yeah we saw their van and they weren't at it in this place in mexico so we went to the beach came back we we're about to leave and we hadn't seen them and we're like oh, okay it wasn't meant to be kind of thing we were, i think we were like um debating whether to leave a note on their windshield windshield or something and just when we we're like no we didn't see it wasn't meant to be we we're about to drive off they came up behind us and we're like hey and then so we started talking and decided pretty much straight away, let's hang out for a few days. Um, Christian and Aubrey came up and joined us. And whilst we were having a really good time hanging out, um, they were filming. And it turns out that they were doing a thing where like every second day they were putting up a vlog, which I think is crazy. But one of them was doing one day and then the other couple were doing the other day. And at the time I knew nothing about YouTube. Like, I'd only ever watched YouTube for tutorial videos. Um, I didn't know you could subscribe to a channel. Um, and so when they were filming, I was like, it seems like a lot of work. Like, why are you guys, like, why are you doing it? <laughs> to be honest, like, and then they told me about how they were making money from it. It was, it was what was kind of allowing them to travel. And we kind of just had, I guess, I guess we thought about it. We were like, well, you know, our, at the time, I think our budget for the month was like 700 bucks for the month or something. It was super low. And we're like, if we could just make that much off YouTube, then we could travel indefinitely. And that was actually our mindset was like, mm. we don't have to send this year. We don't have to set this year end date anymore because we could start making money and that could allow us to keep traveling. And 
in looking back, I think that that was a really important way. I think it was a really important reason behind us doing well was that we didn't get into YouTube. We didn't travel to improve our content. We were already traveling and then we just happened to kind of fall into making content. And I think people kind of saw that that was genuine and um you know we were so awkward in front of the camera initially and Mm -hmm. christian and aubrey actually filmed our first video for us and completely coached us through doing a channel intro um and then promoted it on their channel and they at the time they had like eighty thousand subscribers so it was this huge boost and i think in the first day we got like three and a half thousand subscribers or something which was just this like here you go what a like i think for a long time literally like at least six months probably more we had this mindset of we are we're only doing well because we got such a helping hand at the start like Mm -hmm. it took a really long time for us to give ourselves any credit i think we're like oh we're just getting this off the backs of other people kind of thing um but in terms of how it changed our travels it changed a lot like we went from not working and then we put that first video out and stupidly we were like we'll see you next Sunday. And literally <laughs> from that point, it was like, I think for our, for the next year, we missed two Sundays. Like we made a video every week. And if you've ever done video editing, which I know you probably has, have at some point, like it's a slow process and I'd never done it. Lee had done a little bit of it, but people didn't, I don't think people understood that it really did become at least a part-time job when we were traveling. Like, um, we'd generally film one or two days of our travel. Um, but then editing would take us about 20 hours per video. Um, and we'd share that, especially once I got better at editing initially Lee was doing it all, but we'd share that load. But what it meant was we kind of traveled a bit slower because we wanted to not lose those two days in that place. We wanted to be like, okay, well now let's have two days of not filming and just really enjoy the place. Whereas I know other couples that have just filmed the whole way through. And I feel like, in some way they've missed out on some of the experience. So, you know, it, it turned us into workers, I guess. And then I realized how, to be honest, how fucking hard it is to <laughs> how hard you have to work to create something like that. Like the, and it was the first time I've ever had my own business and it gave me such more of a respect for people that have their own business because the, the hard thing about having your own business, as you guys would know, is you don't have that, when I was a paramedic, I'd get home from work and I'd be like, well, that's me. We're done for work until I go into my next shift. I, no matter what I do now, it doesn't matter. Like I can just have pure leisure. Whereas when it's your, you have your own business, you get back from a day or whatever. And you're like, I could sit back and watch Netflix or, or whatever and just chill. Or you're like, I could respond to comments on YouTube or I could start building our website or I could do something that will build our business. And, um, that was kind of, it took us a while to really like set some boundaries. And you said what it was like with being in a relationship. I think we started to set boundaries because we were realizing we were like, we'd gone into this kind of like work partnership in the way of doing videos. And, you know, we still had good times together and still really like enjoyed it. But at the same time, we were wary that, 
we needed to have some time where we weren't just talking about work together and we weren't completely involved in it and set some like almost like having a date night, but like right. doing when you're on a holiday, when you're on a, or I, I wouldn't call it a holiday, but when you're, when you're traveling. Um, so yeah. And then that on top of living in the van together in such a small space with a big dog and everything as well. I mean, there was definitely a lot of things on the relationship that weren't on normal relationships, I think. Totally. Um, I think a lot of people get freaked out about just the small space part when you tell them about, Oh yeah, we traveled in a van for, I mean, you guys were in one for a couple of years. People freak out. They're like, Oh my God, we'd, we'd chew each other's heads off if, if we yeah. had to be in a space that small, but then throwing in the uh, you know, the filming, the editing um, and kind of trying to navigate that as well. Cause I suppose something Anna's done a lot more video editing than me and um, yeah, a lot more stuff in terms of really trying to get your own business off the ground. But something I'm trying to constantly just tell her is to allow yourself to enjoy the time off yeah, and try and switch off. It's kind of difficult, but to, yeah, to allow yourself that time rather than always, the, the cogs are always turning in your brain of like what you could be doing, what you should be doing, that kind of thing. It's super hard. And I think this is really where, when I was talking about comparing yourself, I think comes in. Um, and I know we've already mentioned Eamon and Beck. And for us, you know, Eamon and Beck are like, Eamon is ADD. Like there's no other way around it. He doesn't <laughs> stop. He's like, he's not someone that would sit down and watch Netflix and binge a series. He's like, go, go, go. He needs something doing. And where they've been so successful is he's driven that into building a business around his tea company first and then their YouTube. And, you know, it's really hard not to compare to people like that, that like when I just want to take a few days off and then, you know, or I miss a week with a video and then I see not only have they put out a video, they've made an ebook. And, you know, <laughs> and because of all that stuff and because I know them behind the scenes, I know how well they're doing with that kind of stuff as well. Like how huge a difference it's making for their life and their income and everything that you start. It, YouTube can be a really bad place if you get in the mindset of comparing, because when you're doing well, it's great. you like, you think it's awesome, but the problem is you always compare to someone that's doing better. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's just the human mind is you'll always go, Oh, well, I'm not going to compare to someone that's not doing as well. I'm going to compare to someone doing better. And until you're doing better than them, you then focus on the next, next person. And with that, I think it's such a toxic mindset because you never step back and appreciate how far you've come. And really you look too much into numbers. Like it shouldn't be about how many people are viewing your video. It should be about the fact that, for starters, anyone is interested in it and they're enjoying it and you're getting comments saying, you know, this gives me motivation. This is an inspiration. Like those little things, it's so easy. Even with comments like that, you might get a thousand comments on a video and 999 are positive and you'll get one negative one. And that's the one that sits in your head. Like, mm -hmm. and it's just crazy that that's the case. And it's something that I've really tried to change. I think over time and I'm slowly getting better at it, but like, yeah, I don't know. I guess obviously I'm human. And I think what some people forget is that people behind the camera are human sometimes like, and, and take things to heart. And 
yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's something that uh, anyone that we meet that really does have uh, a life online, whether it be, yeah, whether it be a recipe developing blog, whether it's a van life YouTube channel, a podcast, everyone kind of speaks about that area the same. It's, um, yeah, it's really easy to get dragged down by the the comments and it's it's horrible and annoying and frustrating that people seem to just feel unstoppable behind a keyboard um when it really i suppose they're not thinking about the the effects of what it has on the human being behind um yeah behind the work so yeah, yeah it's uh it's a it's a tough one to balance so when I know earlier you spoke about like your dad being a vet, taking in dogs, looking after dogs that no one else wanted to look after. Um, You know, that's definitely a sign of compassion um, from your dad and you've experienced that from a young age. At what point did you, I suppose, click with, with other animals? I know you've got, you know, sheep in your videos and it's, it's cool seeing them um, kangaroos in your videos as well, uh, just yeah. like Australian uh, wildlife. But yeah, was there a point where it was, yeah, where you remember kind of like drawing a line in the sand or was it like a long, uh, a longer drawn out journey? Um, I think I've like, I've always loved animals, like every animal and you know, the, we grew up, as I said, with dogs, but we also had um, rabbits, guinea pigs, a couple of horses, um, like so many around us. And when I got Oki at 21, I always wanted my own dog and I kind of waited till I had finished uni and I, I made sure I was a little bit more settled and I got Oki and he really quickly became really like my best friend. Um, you know, no offense to my other friends, <laughs> but so far, so far you've taken digs at ex-girlfriends and, um, and other friends. So you, you're, you're on a roll there, man. Oki's yeah. taken, Oki definitely takes the cake. Yeah. Well, Oki, uh, like, you know, you've seen him in videos and stuff. There's something about him that I know everyone thinks that about their own dog and, and, yeah, I guess they're kids or whatever as well, that it's they're special because they are to them. And maybe that's true for Rocky, but he, I don't know, he's just been such a good dog from day one. And always, like literally the day I got him, I took him to the beach and he was trying to go in the waves. And I was like, this dog, he was eight weeks old. I'm like, this is definitely my dog. And then from three months old, he was sitting on the beach while I surfed and always did from then on. Like he would just stay on the beach. He'd watch me surf the whole time. Then I'd come back in and, you know, he, we, I guess we just formed this relationship that like a lot of people have with their dogs and, you know, the cliche, you know, it's man's best friend. And with that relationship, it started me, I guess it took me a long time. Like it took me years, but it started me going, well, why do I have this relationship with my dog? And I love every other animal, but I'm like, I'm okay to eat, you know, eat cows or eat pigs or, or whatever. Um, and over time, I just, it sat, it started to sit less and less well with me to the point that I think I was 20, 
six when I first went vegetarian. So that was six years ago. Um, and kind of, you know, it wasn't the strictest at the time, but I really pushed a lot of meat out of my diet. And then after meeting Lee, I, she kind of started coming across to it. And then when we went, moved into the van in 2017, I kind of said, I, I don't like, I've been, I'd been doing a lot of research about veganism and stuff. And I was kind of just like, I want to try not eating. I think being in the van is the perfect environment where we were on such a budget at the time that we weren't going to be eating out much. You know, we weren't going to be having friends over to entertain for dinner and everything. We were really just eating whatever we literally put in the fridge. So I said, this is the best chance if we want to give it a go to try going fully plant-based and see how it makes us feel and see whether it's sustainable. And, you know, at first I'll admit it was a bit harder because we were shit cooks. Like we just <laughs> we were so basic in what we could make. I know a lot of people think that you you kind of lose access to a lot of tasty foods when you're um, plant-based. And, you know, if you'd asked me in the first couple of weeks, I probably almost would have agreed. <laughs> but in saying that, we, we were eating really healthy, like whole, whole foods. And um, we felt awesome, to be honest. I think within two weeks... Lee noticed the change more than me because I'd been vegetarian up until that point. So it wasn't as big a change, but she'd been actually working at a steakhouse before leaving. So she'd been fully kind of, I think she had the mindset of, all right, we're trying this once we go. So until then I'm just going to eat whatever. Um, and so yeah, when, when we got on the road, she felt a huge difference, felt way more energy. I remember we were doing like 20 K hike. We did a ton of hiking as soon as we got in the van because we're on uh, Canada and Ontario and they're really good with the national parks there. You can bring your dogs in all of them. So oh, that's nice. Kind of, yeah, it's really nice. So Oki was along for the ride in all of those. And yeah, we just felt good. And I think for me, I felt physically better, but something clicked in me that I just felt you know, it was almost like letting go a bit of guilt. Like I no longer felt like, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I think I always knew in some part of me that I felt that eating animals was wrong, but it was just such the norm. And I mean, it's crazy. It, that was only three years ago, but it's crazy. Even in three years, the amount of change and publicity and everything there's been around plant-based and veganism. And I know not all of it's good, um in terms of really the i guess the stereotype as you're saying but also the not just the stereotype type of you know tofu eating hippies but i think more than that the the pushy vegans that you know really want to cram it down everyone's throat and i like i would say i'm almost at the opposite of that almost too much in that i i had a zoom meeting with I don't know if you know what Patreon is, but with my patrons, I had a Zoom meeting with my patrons yesterday. And these people are people that generally, your patrons are ones that watch every video. They know you really well from what they can glean from you online, essentially. And one of them asked whether I was vegan. And, you know, I have been for three years. And that shows, I guess, maybe I don't even talk about it enough. Um, but I, I really think that... Um, I, I really am of the mindset that 
if you're too pushy about about something, you push people away from it. And that's the same way. I often say like those, the vegans that are that, you know, throw blood on people and all that kind of stuff. That's the same as the people that are religious and trying to cram religion down people's throats. It's, it's like the least successful tactic you can do. And I'd rather lead a bit more by example and say, look, you know, just like we would show often what we were cooking in the van and it was always plant-based and we would often like, I guess, show it in just how much energy we had and, you know, we're pretty fit and stuff like that. And I think that's a far better way of encouraging others, I guess, to, to, to do the same. But um, yeah, throughout the trip, um, going from country to country, it was funny. You really learned which countries are like, vegan friendly and which aren't um i was gonna say there must have been some challenges like we found mexico really quite easy because i mean you get a kilo of tortillas for like 18 pesos um which was super easy because then you could always just make you know mushroom tacos or beans rice whatever just just really simple foods and we we had a spice rack in the van so we were always ready to to you know throw in some flavor and 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 make it and like really tasty but were there some countries that kind of made it difficult yeah definitely and but i i think you just hit the nail on the head with one of the things is that being in a van as opposed to say like backpacking gives you such an advantage for being able to combat those places that like that don't have any vegan food because as long as you keep a stockpile in your van and you have your own ability to cook and everything like that, then you're kind of a little bit prepared. And, you know, I remember we went through this, uh, as you said, Mexico was pretty good. The U S was obviously like really good in some places. Um, Portland included. I remember going through there and they're being a ton. Um, That's why we're back here or a huge reason why we're back here. Yeah. Yeah, but then like Guatemala, I remember like we went like literally days, we were going through our pantry, just like going through everything in there because you could not get a single thing that didn't have cheese in it, that didn't have like they like the concept was just not there. And in Guatemala, it wasn't until we got to Antigua, which is, you know, really common tourist destination that all of a sudden there was tons of vegan places because that's what tourists want but um yeah so it was hard and like i'm not gonna lie sometimes we 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 were just like screw it like we can't we're just gonna have to have something with cheese in it or butter Mm -hmm. in the pastry or um because at some point it does get to like well are we gonna malnourish ourselves because we can't get access to anything or are we just gonna this is what's available here um so where, wherever we could, we kind of, yeah, generally made the choice to be plant-based, but occasionally you ju- it just wasn't an option. Um, but other countries, yeah, some, some really surprised me. Like you just go through pockets of like this, all of a sudden running into like vegan restaurants and everything. I remember probably the biggest surprise I had was like in Peru, once we got to South America in Peru, Um, we were in the middle of nowhere, like Peru is bloody massive. And there is so much that I think normal tourism, you never see because there's so 
little in between the big places. There's just like emptiness and beautiful landscapes, but tiny villages, you know, no towns, no bigger towns. And we went through one of these tiny little, yeah, like a one, one road town. And um, there was this plant-based like um, vegan cat, uh, restaurant there that was so good and it was literally I w- it would see no one go through there like it must only be locals that eat there really um, so like little things like that were always a really nice surprise um, it did one of the I think one of the hardest things with traveling and Lee felt this especially is that you don't want to because f- food is part of the culture like you know different countries food can especially in some countries is their culture and so you don't want to feel like you're missing out on the culture because you won't eat a certain thing and I think Lee really grappled with that more than I did um and she always came back to the like she's actually still never been to Europe and really wants to go but she's always like well if I go to Italy I'm gonna have pizza kind of thing you know and I I think that's where people need to ease up on other people that are eating plant-based like you know if you're in a once opportunity and you want to try something then don't make them a pariah because they do it like i think sometimes and that is coming back to the really strict vegans some it's taken too far and you can push people away that are wanting to make that change because they don't want to feel like if every now and then you know say they're addicted to some you know some treat that isn't vegan and they they figure if well if i have that once a month i can't be plant-based so i may as well not even you know i may as well eat anything because i can't be completely plant-based and i think that's bullshit and i think that people need to ease up and let everyone be on their own journey and yeah i I, i'm just really like glad that it is getting more and more popular and there's more and more information out there and I think we're going in the right direction. I just think it's going to be a slow, slow journey to get there. Definitely a, yeah, a slow burn, but I, yeah, I agree with you. I like, I agree with you. It's, I don't think it should be a perfect practice. Um, if, you know, for myself, a good compa- like let's, I go to Italy, right. And I seek out the vegan pizza. All right. Well, that that's your choice and that's you know that's my decision i suppose uh but it yeah it shouldn't mean i should be forcing lee for example to do the same thing if she's yep. if she's 95 percent of the time eating a whole food plant-based diet well imagine if everyone was 95 percent of the time eating a plant-based diet exactly it would be i mean we would just be in such a different world, You'd be in uh, a world. yeah nice. so we, yeah. we we can't push people away. And I see like, so we all do. We see the backlash of like some celebrity saying like, I'm not vegan anymore. It's like, who cares? It's, <laughs> it's one person. And they said they ate, you know, fish. Like the backlash is what makes veganism look unappealing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You go into the comment section on those things and, I can see how if you're not a vegan and you read some of the comments from the pissed off vegans, it's not going to make you want to go over to that side. Like some people are, yeah, I've kind of, I guess I've talked enough about it, but like, yeah, there's, there's a thing called tact. And I feel like in any 
group, whether it's veganism, religion, CrossFit, you know, what, whatever. <laughs> Any cult out there. <laughs> Anything that people are passionate about. Right. There's always going to be a subset in that group that take things too far, that don't understand tact. And it's just like people that don't have good social cues. Like these people writing these ridiculous comments or whatever, I'm guessing they're probably not the most level-headed person in real life either. So it's the same as Mexico being painted with that brush of all of Mexico being dangerous. I just wish veganism didn't get painted with the brush that because of a few crazy all of vegans are crazy like um yeah and then that's the same with any of those any of those groups where there's passion involved i guess yeah i suppose there will be many debates to come because yeah veganism is only getting more popular um and with with change there's resistance so i suppose the more that as a group, we can operate with level-headedness and tact, um, as you were referring to before. Uh, the more people that are going to gravitate towards it, and yeah, hopefully we can get more people on on board because it is. It's sad to think about the future, and like it was very tough watching fires in Australia. Uh, it's you know it happens a lot in australia but there's significantly worse this this time around than they have been in the past and in the past you know they were they were also really i what do we have those black was it black black saturday fires were at that time were unprecedented and just horrifying but then this time around just seemed 10 times worse. Yeah. Just the, the amount of land that was covered, the amount of wildlife that uh, were displaced, injured and, and died, the amount of homes that are burned to the ground, the amount of businesses that are burned to the ground. Um, and then to see it here in my, I suppose my new backyard is equally as um, depressing. But the thing that really gets me is that this is only uh, the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, if this is what, if this is what one degree of change, um, if this is what the result is, well, unfortunately, even if we were to stop in our tracks as human beings and, you know, change our ways, uh, totally, we would still experience levels of, of climate change beyond this. So I do hope that we can kind of, yeah, help each other to, uh, to get into a position where we're we're helping each other make change rather than um, than fighting against each other because some people are finding it more difficult. We're all under different circumstances, so there's no reason why. Yeah, we should be thinking that people can easily uh, switch out different parts of their lives for new ones. So yeah, I think you really. It's it's good that you're level-headed, man. I don't I don't think that. Y- you know, I don't think you should say that you're doing too little. Uh, the mm. fact that people are asking you in your patron um, calls is, I think that's a sign that, you know, you're doing, you're doing enough. People are, people are listening. People are looking at the small cues, whether it's, you know, I noticed that you had a sea shepherd cup uh, pouring coffee into a sea shepherd cup the other day um, on, 
on one of your videos. So all those little things make a huge difference. Yeah. And, but I think it's also important that to know that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, I hate the term, but you don't have to be like an, an influencer or someone with this huge following to influence people around you. Like the, the amount of people I know that have gone plant-based because someone they know did and they saw the changes. And I think that's where a lot of the change is going to happen is like even a lot of my family, my brother's now completely vegan. Um, His wife's, you know, she's pretty close. His kid's pretty close. Um, And then like even my family broader all eat so much more plant-based because because they're, they're around that. And like, you know, if I go there, then, you know, I hate to be the pain in the ass, but if right. they're not, <laughs> yeah, it kind of, uh, like, I think that having people around you that are, is just going to naturally lead to more and more and um, more and more veganism happening. But when you were talking about kind of the future and, and, you know, climate change and stuff, I just really hope that, people as a whole like the majority come around to going vegan as a choice rather than being forced into it because shit's gotten so bad with the climate like Mm -hmm. i think it'll be so much nicer and better for everyone if it's more like over time with education and all of that and i actually think it's going to be a generational thing i think like you're going to look at and i know that's looking really long term especially with how quick climate change and stuff seems to be happening but i think you're going to each generation you're going to see a much higher percentage of people that are plant-based and things like that just like how you're seeing homophobia and racism slowly become you know less and less i think that's going to be the same with with eating meat and Mm um you know yeah i just hope it's not forced on us because shit really hits the fan with the climate and I think the the crazy thing is that both of us, I know you're from Australia, but you're living in the US and both of us are currently living in countries where the leaders of the countries don't really believe in climate change and are doing negative actions towards it. And, you know, I think that that's something that if that changes, that is really going to change it for a lot of people because mm-hmm. if you start getting leaders that can you know, believe in it and taking actual positive steps towards it. That's going to be huge. So, and you know, why, why the fuck don't we have better leaders? Like, that's what I don't get. Like, how is these guys the best our country can put up? Like that blows my mind so often, but I guess that's politics and that's the way it works. And obviously there's a lot of money and things involved with that and, you know, keeping the right people happy, which might mean doing a policy that they don't even necessarily believe in. So I don't know. I'm not very political, so I don't want, I don't want to jump down a, a line that I don't know a heap about, but it's a different it's just, rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Different rabbit hole for sure. It's, it is very tough. It's tough to grapple with. Uh, I, I think mainly because, you know, we feel helpless. You go to the polls, you, you vote, for who you think will make better decisions. Cause I don't think there really is, there's not many leaders out there making great decisions for the climate, which is even more disturbing because 
there isn't really a beacon of, of hope out there. Uh, I think maybe the New Zealand prime minister um, is probably the one person that I keep hearing of, uh, you know, and, from, from the public here, they're like, Oh man, why can't we just all move to New Zealand? Like it's, it seems to be going well over there. Wasn't it uh, Belgium as well? Or one is one of those small European countries. They've, their election like they've gone completely climate focused on theirs and gotten in so you're right that it, it's sad that it's you know you've got to think of a couple of examples out of hundreds of countries of yeah. people really good stuff and hopefully that too will change um but i think everyone part of everyone wants to be from new zealand you know yeah <laughs> i i think um New Zealand's a kind of New Zealanders are like the Canadians, like Australia is to America as New Zealand is to Canada. They're kind of they're the nicer, you know, <laughs> yeah. the the nicer the nicer people in our area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, little little more chilled out than we are, and a lot of people, you know, say Australians are the the most laid back people in the world. But I think you'll find that New Zealanders are are usually pretty chill. Yeah. And yeah, it, it sounds bad to say, but I think sometimes Australia get Australians get a better rap than they deserve sometimes. And I, I, I love Australia. It is like, you know, after I've traveled to 40 countries and I've never found somewhere I'd rather live. And I was always kind of in the mindset that if I did, I'd probably move there, but I love Australia. But I remember listening to one thing on the radio and a, this really well-educated Australian guy was saying, Australians are the biggest pack of whinges in the world. And I actually, I know whinges is a very Australian term as well, but <laughs> it's true. Like Australians don't know how good they have it. And I think it's only from like, you've done it the same. Like you're in the States, you realize how shit their healthcare is, how shit like so the schooling, everything compared. Australia has things so good, but they take it. So many Australians take it for granted. And with that, I find that there's still this like um, there is a bit of like an underlying racism in some parts of Australia that sometimes doesn't get acknowledged. And we have, we have this like really nice guy perception from the outside that don't get me wrong. I think is earned by 90%, but we're not perfect. And I think that a lot of things could be done to improve. Like the fact that we took so long to approve gay marriage is like, mind-blowing like and then the we way like, it was done oh, was by a vote yeah and almost didn't get Wild. up like oh. well i think that speaks volumes yeah that speaks volumes yeah i've uh due to i suppose you know the it's been a real like uprising here uh yeah. it's been quite phenomenal it's been a really intense time like with covid um the death of George Floyd kind of just putting, putting the light back on um, the injustices that happen here. What seems like every single day uh, it's a shame that the light can't stay on it and the momentum just, you know, it gets lost sometimes and I'm, we're all too busy with our own crap to be able to just, push the momentum like keep the momentum going as it, as it really needs to be but i went out and got a book called dark emu um, that i've started reading and it's really just to learn more about my own like australia and 
Um, I think people perceive Aboriginals as being these unsophisticated people. And when the British people got to the shores of Australia, that they just, I don't know, help civilize the place. Yeah. But it's totally untrue. Yeah. And it's baffling to me that those types of thoughts are still ingrained in, you know, like our parents' generation, their parents' generation, um, and, and just things have ha- happened so slowly. So, yeah, we're definitely not exempt. And um, I'm glad this is now a global uh, an awakening, I suppose, to the injustices that happen because it's super sad. And, yeah, I hope we can all educate ourselves more and speak up more for, for people, animals alike that, that are suffering. Um, yeah because it, it needs to happen. And I always recommend the, the, the video, uh, sorry, the movie rabbit proof fence to people that haven't seen it, especially Americans. If they, if they don't know much about Australian history, I always think that's a really good one to point people in the direction of. Yeah, it's definitely eye opening. And yeah, I think, yeah. One of the things in the van in Australia that I would really like to do is go to more, um, kind of like off the beaten track remote places and, and shine a bit of light on like there's so much, so little known by people from other countries, let alone Australia about the indigenous culture here. And I'd love to kind of even personally learn more about it myself, but also be able to share that with people. And I like, I do feel like we've, you know, I'm generally a pretty positive person and I am about a lot of things. Even when you're talking about the way the world's going, like I still have this like background positivity that things are going to get better. Like, you know, whether it's rational or not, like I feel like I have faith faith in humanity. I have faith that we are going to get good leaders. Like I have faith things are going to change. And I, I just feel like Australia isn't immune to that you know it needs to change as well and and uh it's an amazing place but yeah we there a lot more acknowledgement of kind of the aboriginal culture and even just all the immigration that happens here and the way we treat some immigrants and mm-hmm. stuff it'd be nice if that could change there's work to be done globally there's work to be done um no one's exempt and i think uh I think it feels different. It feels, it feels like there will be change. Uh, it feels like I, I'll feed off your positivity because I, I feel like we can get there as well. I think we can. Yeah. I, I don't really want to, you know, drown in the, uh, the negativity of, of what is going on right now, but Oki. So we were, we were chatting to him, chatting about him before and, you know, he's obviously a massive part of your life. Um, but you don't have him right now, do you? No. Well, the good thing about Oki is 90% of the story about Oki is a really positive one. You know, he's, yeah, or 99%. He, as I said, you know, I've had him since he was eight weeks. He's now nine and he's been my kind of like adventure buddy and everything the whole way through. And then to the point that, yeah, we've been to, 16 countries together now um, amazing yeah he's he's one of the most well-traveled dogs out there and 
the yeah so essentially when lee and i did break up in december that was obviously a really tough time um in general and you know a few things had kind of been leading up to it but it's still like i think is so often the case for anyone that gets broken up with it still comes as a little bit of a surprise that that's kind of like a final thing and for me it just really hit me because i realized not only am i am i breaking up with lee but our business was all revolving around our youtube channel max and lee then on top of that i was living in canada so i didn't really all our friends were friends that I'd learnt, met through her kind of thing. And on top of that, Oki was with us in Canada. But when I looked into it, the as soon, pretty much the first thing I did when we, when we broke up was look up how, like literally Googled, how the fuck do you get your dog back to Australia after? And it's, you know, some people would probably be really surprised that that's something that I wasn't already on top of but I just wasn't like, I, I'm not good at planning ahead. And I was just like, I'll tackle that when it gets to it. And, or, you know, if it comes to it. And uh, when I looked it up, I found out that it was a minimum of 180 days um, that you have to wait to be able to get your dog back to Australia because they have to have a rabies titer test. Um, and then that's the time frame they have to wait because Australia has no rabies in the country and because they're so strict about their biosecurity measures, there's all these boxes you have to tick to be able to get your dog back. And so I was kind of came to this realization that shit, I'm in Ontario. It's fucking the middle of winter. It's snowing, which that alone was actually kind of one of the things that led to us breaking up was I, I kind of said to leave only a few days before I, I just said, I can't live somewhere like this. Like the, I'm so, my mood is so affected by being like the two ends of the scale, being out in the sunshine. I thrive being in the snow for, for a week, snowboarding, love it. But living in it is just not for me. Like I know some people can do it. Um, and some people are fine with it, but it's not like, that's just not who I am. Um, but so I was kind of in this spot realizing Oki couldn't come home for six months. It was coming up. It was 10 days before Christmas. And obviously I was pretty devastated. And Lee said, well, you know, of course I'll look after Oki. And she was really, you know, she's been awesome about that. She's, she's taken care of him the whole time. And so at the time I made the decision, okay, I need to be around some like support network. So I'll fly home for Christmas um, see my family who I hadn't seen for quite a while and be around them, be around, you know, loved ones and everything with the plan that in March or April, you know, well started, started straight away. We would get the process going to get Oki back so we could start getting that ball rolling. And then I'd come in March or April and cause we still had the van there. I was going to come and take Oki on a trip, just me and him for like a month just to break up that time we were apart. So, you know, it was only three months, then I'd seen for a month, then it was only a couple, a few more months. Um, and then of course, by the time I got around to organizing, being able to come and visit him, it was right when kind of COVID struck. Um, and I was told, no, you can't really fly to Canada at the moment. So I, I just thought I'd wait it out. I thought, okay, well, Oki can come back in July. Um, 
So I'm just going to have to kind of deal with this until then. And then, of course, Melbourne airports closed down. All the flights have been cancelled. So since July, we've been trying to get Okia flight back and they just keep getting cancelled. Um, we finally got him one and then got told that the there's only one quarantine facility in Australia and the dogs have to fly into there, into Melbourne and quarantine there. And finally got a flight that looked really promising and then got told the quarantine facility is now fully booked because they've gone to reduce numbers because of COVID. So they were at like a third capacity and they couldn't take him for another month. So that's kind of where we're at. The earliest he can come is October 13th at this point, which is going to be 10 months um, without him. And that's been super hard. Like I, I was saying to you before when I was talking to you that I was listening to your, your podcast you just recently put out and you were saying how your dog Indy has been such a huge support for you guys during COVID. And, you know, everyone that has a dog knows how, how comforting they are. And that's why people have dogs as stress relievers. Like they literally have done studies showing that you de-stress when you pat a dog. Like, you know, there's all these like crazy things out there. And, um, I just haven't had Oki through that time. And it's, yeah, it's been really hard. I think I, I struggled with it more at the start. And then I kind of, I guess it was like the stages of grief, you know, kind of thing. I, I got to a point of acceptance, like he's going to come. At least he's in a really good place. At least he's with Lee and he's in a really loving environment. Um, but the longer it goes on, the more I'm just like, I just want my dog back, you know, like, it, he's nine I don't know how many years he's got left um I just want to I want to be able to spend that with him so hopefully in the next month I can get him back and I know there's a lot of people batting for him to be able to get back and be with me and yeah I just hope it happens sooner rather than than later and I feel like I know so many people have written off 2020 um for multiple reasons and I was really trying to be positive through 2020 and like well I had a pretty negative start with everything going on but I tried to get out of that and be positive and that's where I've done the van build and I thought you know at least if I come out of this with the killer van and Oki gets back and I maybe go back to work as a paramedic like things will really be heading in the right direction and coming from a place where at the start of the year it was hard to positive i was like there's a lot to look forward to um so yeah i'm now kind of just being i've become one of those 2020 people that's just like well i'll have it all lined up for 2021 and go from there you know um hopefully i can have all those things back by then yeah it has been tough uh it's hard to stay positive for sure um yeah i'm looking forward to seeing oki get back dude um he's what an amazing dog. He's a, he's a awesome dog. And for everyone that hasn't really uh, got to know Max and, and Oki at all, definitely head to the Max and Lee YouTube channel. Uh, Cause you've got hours of content there to, uh, to kind of go through, but yeah, you could definitely lose yourself in, in that channel for a while. Um, but yeah, I think there are things to be grateful for. It is tough. Uh, and the more we can remind ourselves of the small things uh, that we're grateful for, I think the easier it gets. Yeah. Um, 
we could talk vans i'm sure for hours and and you build for for hours it's been honestly dude like just as a i suppose preemptive kind of some preemptive information max is not a plumber not an electrician not a carpenter this van build you need to go and check out but it requires all of that um you know prof- all those professions um and it's dude i was saying before but like it makes me so nervous every time you put a hole in the van and then like the the amount of craftsmanship and and thought that has gone into each uh project and the the things you've had to navigate with like the iveco roof and everything is and the you know the all the it's almost corrugated iron you're dealing with it's uh it's um it's an interesting shape but yeah, you've just done an incredible job, dude. And you're getting close. I imagine the last video we watched the vans looking real nice. Uh, the fridge is in the showers in the wood looks epic. Um, 200 liters of water capacity. Um, dude, it, it sounds incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not lying when I say that, literally each job I take on at the end, I'm like, shit, that actually came out better than I thought it would. (laughs) Just waiting for me to attempt something that doesn't work out. And somehow it hasn't happened yet. I mean, a lot of definitely been like, as I say, every time way bigger jobs than I thought they'd be. I'm like, I'll smash that in a day and it takes five, but somehow they've all come together so far. Um, I'm really, I'm really happy with it. I, you know, you said how much I've thought it out. If anything, I've overthought it. Um, and I, in a way, I, I frustrate myself so much with how much of a perfectionist I can be. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a really, like, comfortable, nice place. And I remember in my last van, Lee and I would often be like, you know, we'd just be lying in the bed in the van and being like, looking at the ceiling and everything going, we made this, you know, like it, it's that really cool feeling of this is like something you've put your heart and soul into for months and it, it come out the other end. And I remember when I finished that last van, it was one of like my proudest achievements because I did have people being like, you have, you don't have any of these skills, like as if it's going to turn out, you know, that good. And it turned out better than I thought. And to be honest, this van isn't shouldn't even be in the same category as that van in terms of the amount of complication that has been added for this van because of things like adding a shower cubicle hot water um you know just all the drawer system everything i've kind of in a way i would almost say that i probably bit off (laughs) almost more than i could chew in that it has gone so in depth um but as you said, I'm starting to see the results and it, it's coming together. And once these I, I've ordered, I kind of splurged and got some like professional cupboard doors cut because I figured everything else looks so nice. I'd like to finish it off with like a really nice kitchen. Um, so I'm just waiting on the doors to arrive. And once that comes, it's putting in the countertops and the sink and stuff. And then it's pretty much done. Like it's all small stuff after that that... I could honestly chip away at for another year just doing finishing details, but um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move into it and start adventuring in it and, uh, yeah, get Oki in there as well, which will, which will be nice. Dope, man. Yeah. I can't wait to just follow along and, and see it when it's all finished. Uh, yeah, we love, we love looking at van builds and I think you along with Mitch Cox. Um, yeah, you guys do a great job of, um, of showing us how it's done. Uh, what you particularly do and for guys at home that haven't really got the chance to watch just so engaging, like the, the content, it's super engaging, super helpful. Uh, and you know, it's got, it's got Anna and I looking at each other multiple times going, Oh, should, you know, can we get a van? Can we do this? Like it's, um, it, it, it just gets you itching to, to get back out on the road. Um, and yeah, your van, dude, it's, it's going to be, it's honestly a tiny home on wheels. That thing is, that thing's going to be epic. So I suppose in wrapping this up, it's been an honestly been a pleasure speaking with you, man. It's been, um, really good getting to know, yeah, just about your, your whole background and, and how you've got to where you are today. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, for you to let everyone know where we can find you online, uh, best spots, uh, to subscribe, to follow and, and all that business. Um, and, and what we can expect for the rest of 2020. Sure. Well, yeah, I, considering I'm someone that, you know, my income and business relies on social media. I actually haven't, haven't been all that present on it lately, but I feel like I think so many people are in that boat that um, it, they're finding it hard to, you know, to want to post right now with certain things, especially for me, for some reason, I can post a video on on YouTube every week, but on Instagram, I just, I haven't felt that drive to like be sharing on there yet, but hopefully that'll change as I get back out on the road and start doing things. So <laughs> I know that's not the best driving force to get people over to my Instagram, but my Instagram, if anyone wants to check it out is max underscore bids. And I do put up stories on there from the van build. And then the, at the moment, the videos for the van build have been on the Max and Lee channel. Um, I've still been filming on that, but I am also going over to the Max and Oki YouTube channel probably within the next month. Um, these, I've got a couple of videos left to go on Max and Lee and then it'll be going there. So the van tour and hopefully my reunion with Oki will all be up there pretty soon, which I'm, you know, I'm excited about, and that's going to be a whole nother adventure, I think for me. Um, but I'm also looking at going back to paramedics for a while. So I think it'd be really nice to take the focus off relying on YouTube as an income. I think, I think as a content creator, and I think as in any form, like whether you are an artist or a musician or, or whatever, if you're relying on that for your passion like that for for income it can influence it adds stress to it and it can change your sorry your content and how it comes out whereas i'd like to go back my ideal would be to go back to paramedics and eventually go into like a casual kind of um role as a paramedic and then have the youtube as a side where i can really put out things i'm proud of but not feel this pressure that it has to be every week or you know not put out the video for a sake of putting out a video, but doing something that I I'm really excited about. And that's part of that goes with showing more of Australia. Um, and 
showing, I guess, more of what life's like living a little bit differently, you know, not living in an apartment, but living in a van and, and the people, I guess I meet along the way. So that's my plans for the near future. And <laughs> I haven't thought too far ahead of that at this point. That, yeah, I think that'd be an awesome insight because with housing prices and everything going up around, uh, you know, around the world, people are forced to think about living a little bit differently. And uh, with the amount of work you've put into the van, it's certainly going to be something that, uh, at least from what I've seen, I feel would be a sustainable place to, um, to live in, uh, gets you to the surf nice and easy, you know, um, that's going to be awesome. Uh, but then who said you can't do a, you know, a regular job, if you will, and, and, and live in a, in a, in a van as well. So uh, giving people that kind of, I suppose, just showing people it's possible. I think yeah. that's going to be, that's going to be awesome. And then for me, I think looking forward to seeing a bit more of Australia through your lens. Don't go break in any more lenses though. Um, yeah. yeah. That lens is still struggling along, but yeah. Um, uh, I was going to say, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll be the guinea pig for, for people that are wondering whether you can do a, a normal job and live in a van. So maybe follow along and I'll let you know how it goes. If you see I end up in a house in six months, it would <laughs> you know, you never know. All right, mate. Well, appreciate your time. You've given up more than enough and yeah, we're thankful uh, for that. Good luck with finishing off the van. Good luck with getting Oki back. And yeah, hopefully we chat soon, dude. It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on here. Um, look forward to following along with more of your stuff from here on out. And yeah, thanks for having me. I'm sure plenty of your, uh, your podcasts are going to be longer at the moment because people, <laughs> people don't have a lot else to do, but also they're probably dying to chat with someone. I don't know. The sheep here aren't too good at conversation. It's been nice having a chat with a real person. Good stuff, mate. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, look forward to sending this one out to the followers. Thank you. No worries, mate. See you later. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. A longer than usual chat, I will say. So I do appreciate you sticking around. I think that was probably a combination of COVID restricting us from normal human interaction Anna and I spending most of the last week indoors due to the Oregon fires and also the fact that it was super interesting to learn more about Max's life. If you'd like to see more of Max on social media, please head to YouTube, search Max and Lee, also Max and Oki. On Instagram, you can find Max at Max underscore Bids, that's B-I-D-S. I know he didn't really give you a great incentive to follow him on the gram, but I've got a feeling there will be some great shots once the van is totally done and he's hit the road. As always, I appreciate you all listening in. If you do have a spare moment today, please leave a rating and a review for the podcast or subscribe to our YouTube channel. I hope this episode finds you guys safe and healthy. Can't wait to catch you all next week for another episode of the Veg Talk Podcast.